Welcome to this week's episode of the My Mysterious Bible Podcast, the podcast where the mysterious parts of the Bible matter. My name is Michael Norton, and I will be your host for this week. We are going to tackle the question, does God's foreknowledge of events prove that they are predestined? This is a very specific look at the topic of predestination, dealing with the topic as I just stated it in the title. We're going to lean heavily upon the handling of the subject by Michael S. Heiser in his book, Unseen Realm. I will be quoting a healthy section of the book because, frankly, I cannot say it any better than he did. And I quote, Acknowledging God's foreknowledge and also the genuine free will of humankind, especially with respect to the fall, raises obvious questions. Was the fall predestined? If so, how was the disobedience of Adam and Eve free? How are they truly responsible? Since we aren't told much in Genesis about how human freedom works in relation to divine attributes like foreknowledge, predestination, and omniscience, we need to look elsewhere in Scripture for some clarification. Let's look at 1 Samuel 23, 1-13, and note the underlining carefully. Now they told David, Look, the Philistines are fighting in Keilah, and they are raiding the threshing floors. So David inquired of Yahweh, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And Yahweh said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Look, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah to battle the lines of the Phil- to battle the lines of the Philistines? So David again inquired of Yahweh, and Yahweh answered him and said, Go up, go down to Keilah. For I am giving the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines. They drove off their livestock and dealt them a heavy blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Now when Abithar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, he went down with an ephod in his hand. When it was told to Saul that David had gone to Keilah, Saul said, God has given him into my hand because he has shut himself in by going into a city with two barred gates. Saul then summoned all of the army for the battle to go down to Keilah to lay a siege against David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting evil against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. And David said, O Yahweh, God of Israel, Your servant has clearly heard that Saul is seeking to come to Keilah to destroy the city because of me. Will the rulers of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Yahweh, God of Israel, please tell your servant. And Yahweh said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the rulers of Keilah deliver me and my man into the hand of Saul? And Yahweh said, They will deliver you. So David and his men got up about 600 men, and went out from Keilah and wandered wherever they could go. When it was told to Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, he stopped his pursuit. In this account, David appeals to the omniscient God to tell him about the future. In the first instance, David asks God whether he should go to the city of Keilah and whether he'll successfully defeat the Philistines there. God answers in the affirmative in both cases. David goes to Keilah and indeed defeats the Philistines. In the second section, David asks the Lord two questions. Number one, will his nemesis Saul come to Keilah and threaten the city on account of David's presence? And two, 
will the people of Keilah turn him over to Saul to avoid Saul's wrath? Again, God answers both questions affirmatively. He will come down and they will deliver you. Neither of these events that God foresaw ever actually happened. Once David hears God's answers, he and his men leave the city. When Saul discovers this fact in verse 13, he abandons his trip to Keilah. Saul never made it to the city. The men of Keilah never turned David over to Saul. Why is this significant? This passage clearly establishes that divine foreknowledge does not necessitate divine predestination. God foreknew what Saul would do and what the people of Keilah would do given a set of circumstances. In other words, God foreknew a possibility, but this foreknowledge did not mandate that the possibility was actually predestined to happen. The events never happened, so by definition they could not have been predestined, and yet the omniscient God did indeed foresee them. Predestination and foreknowledge are separable. The theological point can be put this way. That which never happens can be foreknown by God, but it is not predestined since it never happened. But what about things that do happen? They can obviously be foreknown, but were they predestined? Since we have seen above that foreknowledge in itself does not necessitate predestination, all that foreknowledge truly guarantees is that something is foreknown. If God foreknows some event before it happens, then he may have predestined that event, but the fact that he does know foreknow an event does not require its predestination if it happens. The only guarantee is that God foreknew it correctly, whether it turns out to be an actual event or merely a possible event. The theological point can be put this way. Since foreknowledge doesn't require predestination, foreknown events that happen may or may not have been predestined. This set of ideas goes against the grain of several modern theological systems. Some of those systems presume that foreknowledge requires predestination, and so everything must be predestined, all the way from the fall to the Holocaust, to what you'll choose off the dinner menu. Others delete foreknowledge by proposing that God doesn't foreknow all possibilities, since all possibilities cannot happen. Or they posit other universes where all possibilities happen. These ideas are unnecessary in light of 1 Samuel 23 and other passages that echo the same fundamental idea. Foreknowledge does not necessitate predestination. Things we discussed earlier in this book allow us to take the discussion further. Interjecting here, this is the book The Unseen Realm. Back to the quote, God may foreknow an event and predestine that event, but such predestination does not necessarily include decisions that lead up to the event. In other words, God may know and predestine the end, that something is ultimately going to happen without predestining the means to that end. We saw this precise relationship when we looked at decision-making in God's divine counsel. The passages in 1 Kings 22, 13-23, and Daniel 4 informed us that God can decree something and then leave the means up to the decisions of other free will agents. The end is sovereignly ordained. The means to that end may not be. Implications An ancient Israelite would have embraced this parsing of foreknowledge, predestination, sovereignty, and free will. He would not have been encumbered by a theological tradition. She would have understood that this is the way God himself has decided to rule over human affairs will work. These are Yahweh's decisions, and we accept them. This has significant implications not only for the fall, but the presence of evil in our world in general. 
God is not evil. There is no biblical reason to argue that God predestined the fall, though he did foreknow it. There is no biblical reason to assert that God predestined all the evil events throughout human history simply because he foreknew them. There is also no biblical coherence to the idea that God factored all evil acts into his grand plan for the ages. This is a common but flawed, softer perspective adopted to avoid the previous notion that God directly predestines evil events. It unknowingly implies that God's perfect plan needed to incorporate evil acts because, well, because we see them every day, and surely they can't just happen since God foreknows everything. Therefore, says this flawed perspective, they must just be part of how God decided best to direct history. God does not need the rape of a child to happen so that good may come. His foreknowledge didn't require the Holocaust as part of a plan that would give us the kingdom on earth. God does not need evil as a means to accomplish anything. God foreknew all. God foreknew the fall. That foreknowledge did not propel the event. God also foreknew a solution to the fall that he himself would guarantee, a solution that entered his mind long before he laid the foundations of the earth. God was ready. The risk was awful, but he loved the notion of humanity too much to call the whole thing off. Evil does not flow from a first domino that God himself toppled. Rather, evil is the perversion of God's good gift of free will. It arises from the choices made by imperfect imagers, not from God's prompting or predestination. God does not need evil, but he has the power to take the evil that flows from free will decisions, human or otherwise, and use it to produce good and his glory through the obedience of his loyal imagers who are his hands and feet on the ground now. All of this means that what we choose to do is an important part of how things will turn out. What we do matters. God has decreed the end to which all things will come. As believers, we are prompted by his Holy Spirit to be the good means to those decreed ends. But the Spirit is not the only influence. The experiences of our lives involve other imagers, both good and evil including divine imagers we cannot see. The worldview of the biblical author was an animate one, where the members of the unseen world interact with humans, loyal members of God's congregation or council, sent to minister to us, as seen in Hebrews 1.14, have embraced God's Edenic vision. We are brothers and sisters, Hebrews 2.10-18. Other divine beings would oppose God's plan, God's plan, that is, we're just at the beginning of our journey, but we've learned some key concepts already, concepts that will emerge elsewhere in the Bible to form patterns. Other ideas will accrue, will accrue to these concepts, and the mosaic will start to take form. There are several takeaways from this first section of the book that will take on more shape and definition as we proceed. First, God has a divine family, a heavenly assembly or council of Elohim. These Elohim are not a replacement for the Trinity, nor do they add to it. Yahweh is among the Elohim, but he is superior to all other Elohim. He is their creator and sovereign master. He is unique. Since Jesus is Yahweh in flesh, he too is distinct from and superior to all Elohim. While God has no need of a council, scripture makes it clear that he uses one. His divine family is his divine administration. 
the Elohim serve him to carry out his decrees. God also has a human family and administration. Their status and function mirror the divine family administration. Just as with the members of the divine council who represent God in what they are at, tasked to do, so humans are God's imaging representatives. Just as God doesn't need a divine council, he doesn't need humans either. But he has chosen to use them to further his intentions for earth. Heaven and earth are separate but connected realms. God's households operate in tandem toward a mutual destiny. Their points of intersection along the way inform many other threads of biblical theology. With Eden, the divine had come to earth, and earth would be brought into conformity. Humans were created to enjoy everlasting access to God's presence, working side by side with God's loyal Elohim. But this yearning of God's came with a risk, a risk that was fully known to him and accepted. Free will in the hearts and hands of imperfect beings, whether human or divine, means imagers can opt for their own authority in place of God's. Sadly, that will also become a pattern. Both of God's households will experience rebellion. The result will be the commencement of a long war against God's original intention. The good news is that there will be an equally committed effort on God's part to preserve what he began. End quote. And I know that was a long one. I think this topic lends itself to meditation on what is really happening in the biblical narrative. Jonah had the free will to reject God's plan for himself, but God gets his way in spite of Jonah opposing it. Joseph's brothers, who sold him into slavery, were certainly using their free will to do evil. God foreknew it and used it in a magnificent way. What the enemy means for evil, God can use for good. Back to the, to the beginning. God foreknowing events in no way predestines them. It doesn't mean God cannot predestine something because he's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. But it doesn't necessitate that he has predestined them. And that concludes this week's episode. Check out the Bible in its own context group on Facebook. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time.